fellowship. And it's better to have learning to lean than the Leaning Tower of Pisa, I guess. That's a great medley, really. I mean, you think about that, the person that wrote that chorus, in particular, Learning to Lean, they, they had that one down. That's a, that's a lifelong process sometimes, isn't it? Learning to lean. But uh, God wants to teach us that. So thank you so much. That was very uh, helpful, very apropos. Let's take our Bibles. We're going to be sticking with Matthew chapter 19, where we read the Scripture a little while ago. And I want to focus your attention on one of the verses that will sort of be the text verse for today. And we'll see how that fits in with the context and the other verses that surround it, because it comes from a story. Verse number 16 is the verse that contains uh, what we're interested in here today insofar as a question asked of Jesus. Look at it again. It says, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So look at the end of the verse again. Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? We'll ponder that in just a few moments. Talk about that some in the message. Let's pray together and we'll ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we do thank you for the day you've given. We thank you for the nice, pleasant weather this morning that's made it a little easier for us to be out and about and uh, cheery about things. And uh, Lord, we do think of folks that maybe don't have it so well here today. We think especially of those states in the Midwest where they've had some rough weather here the last several days and even think of the prospect of those places over this way where some of it may be coming. And uh, just watch over us, help us always to... uh, As Christian people, know that you're in control of things, whether it's the weather or our lives. We thank you that it's true in all cases. The Lord, so many people, except they have some uh, major situation like this, don't really look to you. And maybe this is an opportunity to point some to your great power and to uh, demonstrate the truth of your Godhead. And I pray, Father, that you will just continue to bless. Uh, Already we've had a bit of an emphasis uh, calling our attention to the fact that this week has in it the primary elections on Tuesday. And we realize uh, in many cases, uh, folks cast off the importance of those, but yet it really matters because uh, sometimes the people there are the ones that go on and uh, there's choices there sometimes. And I pray, Father, that you would just help us to be good citizens, help us to remember our function in this world as salt and light and uh, go to the polls and do what we can to vote for people that will uphold true American values and biblical values where possible. We thank you for those things. And uh, Father, we thank you today that we can be gathered together into your house, that we can look into the Word of God. And uh, Lord, it's a fresh day, even though we've come from a week that we've had uh, a number of extra services with meetings, yet this is uh, the day that we need to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And we realize that uh, just as sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, so is the grace of God sufficient for today. But we wait upon you for it now and pray that you'll minister to us as you have promised to do in a special way on the Lord's day. Bless our obedience and coming together and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And help us now, Lord, just by the Holy Spirit to find your ministry and those things that we need for our own individual hearts and lives today. You know who we are. You know where we are. You know what we need. And thank you that that's true. And so I pray that you'll just uh, uh, give to me, Lord, that cleansing, that fresh anointing that I need to be able to minister effectively to your people today. Guide my lips, my speech, my words, that uh, all may be uh, a blessing and honoring to you. And these things I pray now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, actually, last Sunday we had the special meetings. It was Mother's Day, so there's a little special emphasis perhaps there. And sometimes we have these days where it's all 
appropriate to move aside from a series, but I do want to come back now to the series that we've been working on on Sunday mornings. Um, they, and they asked him this, and we're looking at those questions. You know, it is kind of interesting, questions that people have asked of Jesus. Kind of interesting uh, when you look at the chapter that we are in this morning. Last time we were doing this, two weeks ago, that's the same chapter we were in. And I'd like to show you something kind of interesting about this chapter because we have actually three opportunities to find a question that's worth considering uh, in Matthew chapter 19. And they come from the different kind of groups or walks of life that we've noticed so far. So if you go back to verse 3, the one that we looked at two weeks ago today, what about divorce? And that you notice in verse number 3, the Pharisees also came unto him tempting and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And so mm, Jesus' opponents, people that were not necessarily looking to promote what Jesus was doing, the giveaway that the motive here isn't the best, is, as I pointed out in that message, then came also the Pharisees unto him, tempting him. So they were sort of looking to create problems for the Lord, and we won't go back over that ground. But there's a question from the Pharisees. And now if we drop down also then to verse number 27, we'll go past the one we're looking at now and look at the third one. Here comes one from the disciples, and we've kind of noticed that really a lot of the questions, maybe the majority, come from the disciples. That's good because they ask questions that we'd probably want to ask or would have asked had we been there. So it says, Then said Peter unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? So you sort of have a something you can think about this week if you want to, because I believe that'll be our, well, maybe not, because next Sunday is Memorial Day. So we'll see how that, it's Memorial Day weekend. So we'll see how that goes. But anon, we will get to that, right, by God's grace. Um, so there, there's one from the disciples. Now, this morning, we kind of come to one in the third category because there were lots of other people that Jesus encountered in, in his day-to-day -day ministry, and that's kind of what you have here. Um, you might have recognized this story. We generally refer to this as the story of the rich young ruler. Now, you've already figured out he was rich from what we read so far because it says he had great possessions. So that much is evident, even if we don't see the word rich. But you have this account in all three of the <clears throat> synoptic gospels. So Matthew, that's the first of them. That's where we are today. You'll find a parallel account in Mark chapter 10, and you'll find the Lucan account is in chapter 18. They all give the question. And you, the reason that I, I, I prefer to be with Matthew for it today is because, once again, Matthew sort of gives the full-throated question, gives us a few details that the others don't. But the others give us a few details Matthew doesn't. And, uh, of course, they refer to him as rich. It's Luke's account, actually, um, in Luke chapter 18, where he is referred to as a ruler. That particular word, uh, you know, we think of G uh, the same English word as applied to Jesus, or to Nicodemus, rather, as a ruler of the Jews. And uh, archon in Greek is exactly that. It's, it's a ruler or a leader of some kind, uh, somebody who has some type of authority, official authority. And uh, so we really don't know. Some people have postulated that maybe this man was a part of the council, that is the Sanhedrin. We can't know that, only that he had some type of position. He was young. He was rich. That much we can know from the story. Now, he comes to Jesus with this question. And you'll notice how Matthew renders it for us here in verse number 16 once again. Behold, one came unto him and said, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? When he asks the question, 
What good thing shall I do that I may have? Just focus on those last words for a moment. That I may have eternal life. And on the face of it, you know what? That's a good question. To know what it is that is necessary for us to have eternal life. That's a good question. Uh, Sometimes we talk about it that way, have eternal life. But a lot of times when we're thinking about the gospel and presenting the gospel, we talk about being saved, which is also a biblical uh, concept, biblical terminology. And that's exactly really what is going on here, even if he doesn't phrase it that way. The disciples later certainly understand that that's what's going on, because notice down in verse number 25, when it says his disciples heard it, they were exceeding amazed and saying, who then can be saved? So that's generally the idea that's going on in the question, and to ask the question, what's necessary to be saved? What's necessary to have eternal life? That's a great question. In fact, you know, we get to that question, uh, one of the best answers, uh, most concise answers, people use this a lot of times, Acts chapter 16, where you have the Philippian jailer. And when he bursts into the prison at midnight, thinking that they've all escaped and, and they're all still there, actually, which was uh, something that he had a hard time believing, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Right? So, and we often talk about that. And what was the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So that's one that we really know. So that sort of gives you some uh, perspective as to the question. On the face of it, it's a good question. But there's a problem here, and this is really what we want to talk about today, because when you, as I, I, I keep saying, on the face of it, when you look at this a little bit more thoroughly, when you pick up the details that are here, although the question is good, it reveals, in the way that it's asked, it reveals two great misconceptions that this young man has. These misconceptions have to do, first of all, with what we might say, why? In other words, why do we need to be saved? Or you might drill it down to the word sin, or what am I talking about specifically with sin? Human nature. He's got an aberrant, he's got a view, he's got a misconception concerning why it is that we need to be saved. And we're going to look into that because if you don't have the right notion as to why you need to be saved, you're not starting at the right place. Right? Because Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And until you're convinced of sin and convinced that you're a sinner and convinced that you need to be saved personally and convinced that sin is real and sends people to hell, you're not at the right starting place in order to be saved. You have to get there. You have to have the Holy Spirit open our eyes to that truth and reveal that to us before we're really on the right trajectory in order to be saved. He's got a misconception concerning that. His second misconception has to do with what we might say how, if you just wanted a word. How, how is it that people are saved? Um, he's got a misconception about that. And uh, so I think it's really useful because I'll tell you this. These same two misconceptions are very prevalent today because people don't change. Times change, but people really don't change, and certainly human nature is always the same. And that's why these questions are so valuable, because even when they reveal misunderstandings or misconceptions, it's well to address that. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus does. In his own way as a master teacher and knowing the heart, that's exactly what he does. He addresses the question 
provides an answer, but at the same point addresses the misconceptions. And I think that's where we can, we can profit greatly from this today. So let's jump into this now as we actually get into the heart of the message. Let's look at these two things. First of all, the why, or the misconception about why, or the misconception about sin and human nature. See, it becomes apparent as you meditate over the story and you read the story, even the question, how the young man phrases the question, that he has a totally insufficient and unbiblical view concerning human nature. Why do I say that? Well, I think if we were just going to put this in, in normal descriptive language that we use all the time, here's his mindset concerning himself. What he thinks about others is not really important at this point. What he thinks about himself is. And what this question reveals him about himself, just to put it in common everyday parlance, he fancies himself basically good. He fancies himself basically good, or if you didn't want to quite go that far, although I think that's accurate, you might say it this way, and it would be very, very similar, and I think both are really in play. He certainly fancies himself better than others. Maybe not quite there, but mostly there. Just maybe a little push, maybe a little extra, and he'd be right there, is kind of the concept he's got of this thing. And I think you can find at least three evidences of this as being his concept. It's wrong, of course, but let me point these to you. First of all, you'll notice in the way he asks the question that he has a preoccupation with doing good. So in verse 16, you'll find the word good occurring twice. First of all, he blurts it out when he's referring to Jesus. That's good because Jesus is good. And it's good that he was unlike the Pharisees, and it's good that he didn't have the contempt or disregard for Jesus that some of Jesus' opponents did. So that much is very positive. But then we have the word used again, and he says this is where it really begins to kind of catch our attention. What good thing? What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, here's something else that's a bit of a technicality, but yet it's interesting. It's, it's, it's kind of um, revealing, I think, as to, as to his thinking processes in this. See, he's using a word here in the original language that has to... It's, if you're going to distinguish it from other words that are translated good, of which there are several, but there are two that are very, very common. You have the word here, which is agathos, and what that means, it's an adjective, but when you use it as a substantive like this, it's what good thing. What, what good thing? And that particular word has to do what's good, especially as you compare it to the other word, with what's good inherently, with what's good by character, goes to nature, see? Whereas the other word, kolos, is also an adjective, also many times rendered good, but has the idea of that which is uh, more pleasing or in its outward appearance is pleasant. Okay, so let's go on a little trip this morning. How many people here have been to London? One, two. Did I miss anybody? The rest of you haven't been, so I don't know if you have a desire to go. I mean, I do know some people that have no desire to really go out of town. They don't even have a desire to go to Walmart. And, well, I sort of sympathize with that one a little bit, but you know what I'm saying. But, uh, you know, most people, you hear so much about England and you hear so much about London. And, and so if somebody offered you the opportunity, how many people would go? Put your hand up. Paid the trip. Oh, I only got one or two more takers. This is bad, folks. 
But I'll tell you something. Here's, here's something you do know. So if you, if you go to London, and even though you haven't been there, and you, but you've heard a lot about London, so you say, well, okay, if I'm going to London, I have to go. Somebody's paying, and, but I have to go. What, are, what, I wanna, what have I heard about in London that I want to go see? And so you say, well, uh, boy, I tell you what. I mean, you know, I want to go see Buckingham Palace. Maybe I'll get to see the Queen. Um, but I'd like to see the changing of the guard. That would be of interest, I think, to you. And, or you might say, I'd like to see the crown jewels. I'd like to see the Tower of London. Yeah, that would be interesting, too. But probably something that comes to mind even before that is you probably want to see Big Ben. You've seen all kinds of pictures of Big Ben, haven't you, before? And Big Ben is noteworthy. It really is noteworthy. Because you not only have there a, a prime example of architecture and things that... that we as human beings are able to put together. God has given us those abilities and gifts. But it stands out, really, not only for its history, but Big Ben happens to be the largest four-faced clock, the largest, most accurate four-faced clock in the world. And so, at the very least, you want to hear it, but you probably want to see it. So when you go there and look at it, outwardly, Coloss, it's beautiful. Right? I mean, you're going to look at that and you're going to say, wow, that, that really is a marvel, outward appearance. But what would you think if you looked at it and you heard all this reputation about its fame as one of the, the largest, most accurate four-faced clock in the world, and you kept looking at the hands and looking at the hands and looking at the hands because maybe you go there and you want to hear it chime, so you're looking for the hour or the quarter hour or half past, and... You keep looking at this thing and looking at this thing and looking at this thing, the hands don't move. Do you know right now, as far as I know, there's a clock like that in Huntington on a church spire. They decided it was too expensive to fix. It was beautiful to look at um, if you like those kinds of things, but you look at it and you say to yourself, there's a problem. And the problem isn't in what I see, because that looks very nice. It looks very pleasant. It's deeper. And I can't see what that problem is, but there's a deeper problem. Well, now you're sort of getting the proper view of what human nature is and the shallowness and the insufficiency of this rich young ruler's view of things, because he's thinking more in terms of what good thing it's a matter of character, and I'm almost there. Just maybe one little more. Help, help that little old lady across the street, and I'm there. That kind of thing. Secondly, he feels he's already got a good track record. This is why I say just maybe one little shove. Look at verse number 20. Um, when Jesus challenges him, what does he say? He says, all these things have I kept from my youth up. So obviously when he thinks about himself, he thinks he's pretty well got it made. I've done all those things you're talking about there. So he feels he's got the tailwind. The winds are behind him. He's in good shape here. Maybe just needs a little extra shove. And number three, he has great possessions. Now, hopefully we know better today, but I'm sure probably still people are confused by this and still people um, have security in this. But especially in uh, the, the biblical days, the Old Testament, the Jews, uh, think of Job, think of Abraham, people like that. How would you measure your wealth? Well, you would measure it, um, you might have silver and gold, that type of thing, but Job, it doesn't talk about the money as such that he had. It talked about 
the servants. It talked about the livestock, the holdings, all those types of things. So in a, in a land like Israel where the economy is all, in Bible times, all pastoral, that is the animals and agrarian, the crops, uh, you would look at a man's holdings, and if a man had great holdings, that was regarded, uh, widely regarded as a token of God's blessing and favor. So you would think that if, if, if you had a lot of those things and those things were multiplied, that God was, you were pretty, you're in, in decent shape. You're, you know, that's why the disciples, by the way, just so you can see that this is all fitting the context, that's why the disciples, when they hear Jesus say, how hardly shall a rich man enter into the kingdom? And in fact, Jesus went so far as to say, it's actually impossible because people trust in their riches. And he said, it, you can't get a camel through an eye of a needle and you can't get a rich man into the kingdom of heaven without God. With God, all things are possible. And so the disciples, though, they're shocked by this when Jesus says this. Jesus, as I say, always the master teacher takes the opportunity to turn from the rich young ruler when that exchange is over with and turn to his disciples and the teaching point is now arrived. It's time to teach them a lesson. And so that's what he's doing. He says, how hardly uh, can they that have riches be saved? And the disciples, when they hear all this business, they say in verse 25, they were exceedingly amazed. That was against the concept that they kind of grew up with, that if you had a lot of God's blessings resting on your life that you could see in terms of outward possessions and riches, that meant that you were, you were good. You were, God was on your side. Now, having said that, all that about the concept that he has and how it's wrong and how it's insufficient, let me hasten to add something else. Mark, if you want to look at this, you can, or if you just want to write it down, or you can just take my word for it. It doesn't really matter. But in Mark chapter 21, this comes from Mark 10, chapter 10, verse 21. Uh, now we have a little detail that Mark gives us. Jesus says something about the rich young ruler, or the, the account says something about Jesus' idea about this, his response. When... In verse 20, in Mark chapter 10, when he says, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Mark gives us this detail we don't have in Matthew. Don't have in Luke. It says, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. That's really an important detail. It isn't that God doesn't love everybody. We know that. It's that it's meant to point out to us that Jesus, when he looked at this young man, when he listened to this young man, out of the abundance the heart speaketh. He knew he was sincere. He wasn't a hypocrite. He wasn't like some of the other people that Jesus dealt with that were whited sepulchers. You know, outwardly they had that pleasant appearance, but inwardly they were dead men's bones and corruption. Jesus looked at him, knew he was sincere, knew he was erstwhile. Uh, but folks, you know, there's a point to make from this, and that is, you can be sincerely wrong. And sincerity doesn't change the fact that you're wrong. Try that on the policeman the next time. He pulls you over. I mean, you know, I've had a many a time, I'm sure you have too, where I sincerely thought the speed limit was one thing, and the patrolman was absolutely convinced, well, I shouldn't say I've had a, num a number of times because I only had that once, but there's a number of times it could have been that the patrolman would, would quite uh, promptly inform you you know, it doesn't really matter what you thought the speed limit was. Here's what it is. And, uh, 
you know what? You can be sincere all day long, but you can be dead wrong, and the sincerity mitigates to some extent because if you're, if, you're, if you're a put on and a fake and a fraud, that's worse. But the sincerity isn't going to undo the wrong. If you're wrong, you're wrong. And so that's what's going on here. At least we have that, though. So Jesus confronts the problem head on. And this is going to really show us in that Jesus answers. He answers him one way because he knows that he's sincere. So he's not blunt. He doesn't rebuke him. He's not un, you know, like he might have been with the, with the Pharisees or the Sadducees. But he says to him, and this is a frontal assault on the problem. The very first thing he says, the next verse, Why callest thou me good? Because there's none good but one, that is God. Now, we might say that this helps us to see the deity of Jesus Christ, which it does. And he may be challenging him in that respect. But the main thing that he's really trying to get at is that if you want to go down this road, if you want to talk about this notion that I'm pretty good, well, then the question you need to be asking yourself is this, good is God? And folks, I'm just telling you something here this morning. I'm not trying to be unkind, but you know what? You have to be honest and truthful with people because sometimes it really takes being a little blunt to get some people to face up to the fact, you know what? God isn't interested in the sense of it being our righteousness, of it getting us to heaven. God isn't interested in the good things that maybe we think are in our lives. I mean, they're, they're for something. They, they're good for something. It's better to be a good person, humanly speaking, than a bad person. But it doesn't change what's on the inside. It doesn't change basic human nature. And only God is inherently, intrinsically, by character, righteous because man has fallen. Which is why it's so important for us never to surrender any of the Bible, but particularly, as Ken Ham always reminds us, Genesis 1 to 11. Because everything formative, everything that you need to know in some way, it seems, is, is there. I mean, it, it teaches us about what kind of people we really are deep down inside. And the fall of man happens there. And man is inalterably changed. God told him, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Did he eat the day Eve gave him the piece of whatever it was and he, died, and he ate it? Did he die? Did he? Yeah, it's a trick question. He didn't die physically, but he did die spiritually. And the evidence of that is all there because he's estranged from God. The very next scene that we find is God comes to fellowship with him in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam was always comfortable with that before. Now he's not comfortable. Something's changed. He's shrinking from God. He's hiding from God. And all of this business kicks in until finally God has to give them the, 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 the thought of sacrifice, the skins, and all of this kind of thing. And everything changes from there until we finally get to a couple chapters later, Genesis chapter 6, and it's gotten so bad that God has to say, he saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. This is Genesis 6, 5. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God destroyed the world with a flood. 
That's what unchecked human nature produces. When you don't have the rule of law, which is something else that, this is free, okay, this really wasn't a part of my message, but, you know, that's something else you find in Genesis 1 to 9 is, is the advent of human government because you have to have human government in a society where people have a fallen nature. And unfortunately, sometimes you get human government, which is populated and controlled by people who are, well, we're all fallen, right? But some of them are a little, seem like a little more fallen. But if, if you get people who, as a society, moves away from the rule of law, as the society moves away from Christian values, then you get despots and you get some of these governments like we see in the world today that, that are controlled by people that are just tyrants. Um, and, and we've seen many examples of that. So only God is good by nature. And so the standard, if you're really looking to think about heaven and fancying yourself as almost good enough, ask yourself the question, are you as good as God? That's the real question because that's the only standard that God can go by. Not only this, but this rich young ruler misses the fact that, you know what? He's already in violation of what we might call the first table of the law. Now, you know this, I think. I think you've heard lots of Bible preaching and teaching to know this, but let's just be sure we don't leave anybody uncertain what I'm talking about. So you have the Ten Commandments, which are the embodiment of the moral law, right? And you have the first four. So sometimes we talk about the first table of the law, the first four, which deal with man in his vertical relationship, his relationship to God, right? What's the first of those commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, it becomes apparent that he has another God, someone or something in his life that's more supreme than God, because when Jesus gets back to him and says, and get rid of all your possessions, sell them all, give to the poor and come follow me, it says he went away sorrowful for he had great and many possessions. And he had such a hold on him that they really occupied the throne of his life. There was idolatry that existed. The first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Well, his money might not have been a graven image, but it was the same thing. It was an idol in his heart. And he doesn't see that. But to be truthful, folks, in the very area where he really prides himself and he really thinks he's good, in the very area where he says, all these things have I kept since my youth up, even there he's deficient. Let me show you this. When the Lord says to him in verse 18, he says to the Lord, the Lord says to him in verse 17, keep the commandments, he says, which? And Jesus said, now notice what commandments Jesus gives him. Thou shalt do no murder. That come from the first table of the law or the second table of the law, man and his horizontal relationship, man and his relationship with man. Which, where does that come from? Second table of the law, right? All right, because, you know, your neighbor. You're not supposed to kill people. You're not supposed to murder people. Thou shalt not commit adultery. First table of the law or second? Second. All right? Thou shalt not steal. First or second? Second. All right? Thou shalt not bear false witness. First or second? Right, because see, notice it, it doesn't say thou shalt not lie, which is true, but this is a more specific rendition. When you bear false witness, that's a sin against your neighbor. So this is also from the second table of the law. 
Then Jesus leaves out the one about coveting, but summarizes the whole, I think, quite intentionally because of what's going to happen next. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And we know that this is the summary of that. There's two great commandments if you want to summarize all ten. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets, we're told. So loving God summarizes the first four. Loving your neighbor summarizes the second table or the next six. Well, he thinks he's so good in that area. Those are the ones that he, the Lord talks about, I think, intentionally in order to set him up, not in a bad way, a good way, for him to have his eyes open to how deficient he is even in the area that he thinks he's pretty good. Because he says in verse 20, all these things have I kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? Jesus said, well, if you be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the, what's that next word, the what? The poor. Well, are the poor your neighbor? Yeah, they are. And folks, I'll just share this with you. I think in, in many of our uh, Bible-believing churches, and, and I understand this, believe me, I understand this, especially if we come from a, a conservative background and we're concerned about um, some of the tendencies of our government just to buy the electorate and expand entitlement upon entitlement upon entitlement. And especially when we know situations when those programs encourage people not to work, it bothers us greatly. But if you are fair then and come back and look at the other side of this, the Bible has a lot to say about the poor. They wanted Paul in that offering to be careful about the poor, which thing Paul says I was already careful to do. And, you know, you can find a lot in the Bible. I mean, poor, many people poor. Some people are poor by their own choices. To me, that's even more pitiful. But there are some people that are just poor. Jesus himself acknowledged that. He said, the poor you have with you always. And for us not to have compassion when we, when we legitimately have an opportunity to help, and you can't help them all because you don't have enough money. But when we're told that we're to be uh, do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith, let's don't just get the last part of the verse, let's get the first part of the verse too, that we're to do good unto all men. And sometimes the best way in the world, you know, this was the great, uh, this was the great passion of William Booth in London with the Salvation Army. He saw an open door to reach those people, people that nobody else cared about, and he had a heart for that. And even Charles Spurgeon, I think, had a tremendous, another minister in London, had a tremendous uh, rendition of, if you're going to give a, a, go a man a gospel track, then wrap it in, you know, something he needs. I, I forgot what his exact wrap it in, but uh, wrap it in a sandwich. And don't you just love these people? Now, I might have been quit, quit preaching and going to meddling, but you'll forgive me, will you? Okay. Don't you just love these people that go to a restaurant and don't have any money to give a tip? Well, then you don't have enough money to go to the restaurant. Because you've got this poor girl over here that's working 
at $2.35 or whatever it is an hour, they're allowed to give them in some cases because of tips. And then on top of that, you put a gospel tract down. Just leave the gospel tract in your pocket. You've done more harm than good. I always make it a point to tell them if I'm going to put the tip on the card or I have a gift card, I always make it a point to tell them because I don't want them to think, well, there goes that guy and I walked by that table and they were talking about the Bible and this and that. And yeah, oh, great. I really love what he's got. Didn't care enough to even leave me a small tip. If anything, I, if I find people at, and sometimes it's, you know, you get the service, you get, I know sometimes you go to these places and you say to yourself, they're not worth a tip. The sorry service. Well, don't leave a big one then. But if I find exceptional service and good service, I'm more prone to leave more because I like it for the opportunity that it represents. I've even left tips in motel rooms before if I thought that the people were attentive to what they were doing because I'm going to leave a gospel track there with it and I want them to read it, so I write them a note. I want them to see the $5 bill or whatever it is that I've left there and think, have their eyes get big for a moment and say, not too many people do that. I guess I'll, go, I'll read this guy's track. Well, that was all free too. But I'm just telling you, this is a biblical concept, and I think sometimes we've overlooked some ministry opportunities that we really could have. And sometimes it reflects the fact that we don't always have an even-handed approach to this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. He loved himself more than he loved his neighbor, or he would have been willing to give some to them. Really? Right? Can you disagree with that? I don't think so. And some hate how, though, to come back to the point, I'll get off the free stuff now and get back to what. Somehow in our day, just as in the day of this rich young ruler, how did he get these faulty ideas? How did he get these misconceptions? Wasn't he a good Jew? Probably. But the trouble is, and I'll put this in our modern terminology, somehow it seems that in his day as in ours, we have a lack of good, clear preaching about the sinful nature of man because it is clear everywhere in the Old Testament that you want to go. I walked us through a minute ago and showed us how right there till you get to Genesis chapter 6 and God saw that the, uh, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Go to a verse like Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately. That word desperately that's translated desperately there, it's incurably it's like cancer. There's no known cure. The only known cure for man's sinful estate is the blood of Jesus Christ. It cleanses from all sin. There is no human remedy that's available for it. Or we could talk about something like Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the more you look and the more you go in the Bible, I'm just giving you some high spots. The more you go in the Bible, You'll find this testimony consistently through the scriptures, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. You come to the New Testament, and there are so many verses, we don't have time for them all, but how about these? Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. And Paul also agrees with the assessment of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is none good but one, that is God, because he says right there in Romans chapter 3, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. No one is good inherently. No one is good by character. Used to be a time when we preached that. Used to be a time when the church was emphatic about that. 
Here's why you need to be saved. Because men and women and boys and girls are lost. They are sinners both by nature and by choice. Before you teach them anything, they know guile, do they not? There's nobody here that's been involved with children that doesn't know how true this is. I mean, it's almost laughable sometimes when you watch a little kid and you take something from them or something like that and they just burst into this. And then it's like the minute you tell them something they want to hear, they, they can turn that off like you turn off water on a faucet. And then as they get older and, and become capable of choices, and, and that, that same scenario unfolded in the life of everyone here. You know that? We were born into this world and no one had to teach us how to tell a fib. It came by nature. And no one had to, had to teach us any of those other things that we did that were wrong, sneaking around behind our parents or behind the principal or anything else. No one had to. But as soon as we got old enough to understand they were wrong, we did them anyway. Some of them, many of them. Am I wrong? No, so we have to be clear with this. And it's, you don't have time all the time when you're witnessing someone. Don't, don't misunderstand me. You, you don't have time to give someone a systematic theology when you're witnessing to them. But you certainly owe it to them to cover the reason why we need to be saved. And it's because we're sinners. If they don't get past that point, if the Spirit of God doesn't take some scripture that you use or some experience they've had to register that truth in their hearts, they're not starting at the right place. You don't start at the right place, hard to get to the right place. So let's talk for just a few minutes about the second one, which is the house. He has a misconception about this too, because not only a misconception about himself that he, he thinks he's basically good, if not all the way there, most of the way there, and What's he need is a little shove. He just needs to contribute a little bit of something and he'll be there. Well, that's wrong too. That's how we're saved. Well, we're not saved by what we contribute. Right? We're not saved by what we contribute. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by what we do. Good master, what good things shall I do? We're not saved that way. And anybody who thinks that is going to have the same problem in the final analysis that this rich young ruler has, which is a lack of security and a lack of assurance because he says in verse 20 to Jesus, he, he, he makes bold and he says, well, I've done all those things. What do I still lack? We'll see if you had assurance because you were trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary and you weren't worried about contributing. You weren't worried about helping God save you. You weren't worried about what you were going to do to earn God's favor. You wouldn't have to ask that because we already know we lack. And you're not going to make that lack up. But as I said here the other night, speaking to a, uh, another situation in another context, you know, it is the most liberating truth that you will ever come across once the day comes that my eyes and your eyes are open to the fact that it's free grace. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it and you don't earn it. And salvation doesn't have anything to do with what we do. It's what he's done. It doesn't have anything to do with us trying. It has to do with trusting in what he's already done. 
And once you realize that, because see, you will never have assurance as long as you have any concept that you have a, a con contribution to make. As long as, even as a Christian living the Christian life, if you think you've got to do it all on your own, you're going to still have a, an impoverished concept of this thing because every day we need God's grace. Every day we can't do what it is that God calls us to do. The, the old theologians called this total inability. And I can remember, and it's not a bad terminology, um, I, I really remember this stands out in my mind when I, in, on my ordination council. Um, one of the gentlemen who was a part of the ordination was actually... Uh, he was actually the, school, the dean of the School of Religion at Bob Jones University. So, um, you know, this was kind of, um, I mean, he was a friend, so I didn't expect him to be uh, overly rigorous. But you get, you're going down through the doctrines and you talk about total depravity, and he put his hand up, and I, I said, yes, sir. And he said, what do you mean by total depravity? And so I was explaining to him what I meant. I thought I gave him a pretty, pretty good answer. I mean, everything I said was good, but it still wasn't totally what he was looking for. I could kind of tell, and he didn't press the point, so I asked him later. And he said, well, what I was really looking for you to do is to say total inability. What's that mean? Well, it means exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Is that in your Bible? You recognize that? You can go look it up anytime you want to. You can't. We are unable to please God by works. But Jesus pleases God. I can be accepted in the beloved. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, I can be accepted in the beloved. I can glory in the fact that it's not by works, it's by grace, free grace. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or as Paul says in Titus chapter 3, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Once you come to see that, once you come to see that God is offering it to you free, not because it was free, because you're bought with a price, but he's offering it to you free because it's bought and paid for by the work of his son on the cross of Calvary. He said, oh, I want that. And when you have that, you never have to worry again. And I don't say that all of our experiences are alike, but I do know this. I do know since the day I really figured that out, and I also know I didn't really figure it out, because the Bible talks about the fact that Paul's commission, as we looked at in that 26th chapter of Acts, is to open their eyes. That's the work of God. In the day that my eyes were opened to that truth, and I surrendered to it, I've had some bad days, and you have too, but I've never lacked assurance. I'm not looking at the mistakes I've done or the good things I've done. I'm looking at what he did. That's all my hope. My hope is found in Jesus Christ, his blood and righteousness. My hope is in the Lord. And the Bible even tells us that this is what the law is really for. In Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, I'm just going to try to quote these to save the time because there's something wrong with that clock too. Hands go too fast. 
It says, and we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So if you say to yourself, why did God give the law if the law couldn't save people? Well, the law, as Paul said in Galatians 3.24, is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law is there for you to run into a wall that just busts your nose that you can't break down, that you can't get through and you can't climb over. It's there to show you you can't and don't measure up so that you start looking for something else. And that something else is Jesus and his work on the cross. I really like the way the German scholar and linguist of the 18th century, his name J.A. Bengel, put it. He said, this is, doesn't this capture what Jesus is doing here? He said, those who feel secure, Jesus refers to the law. The contrite, he consoles with the gospel. Beloved, it's a wonderful thing to know that once we find ourselves safe in the arms of Jesus, we really are safe. You remember, I think I told you about the man that struggled with assurance. And sometimes as Christians, just because we're not uh, tuned into biblical truth maybe, or our background. We might have come from a denominational background that wasn't clear on this, but uh, this man came to Moody on one occasion, I think I told you this, and he was having struggles with this whole issue of assurance. And he said he didn't feel saved. Well, I'll be honest with you, some days I'm not sure. I heard another, I won't call his name, but I heard another great Christian leader say on one occasion he didn't feel saved until he got up in the morning and had his coffee. But the man told Moody he didn't feel safe sometimes, and Moody said, well, let me ask you a question. Was Noah safe in the ark? And the guy kind of looked at him and said, well, of course Noah was safe in the ark. Well, was he safe, Moody said, because of the ark or because he felt safe in the ark? And he's safe because of the ark. The ark was what was safe. The ark was what afforded the security. In those floodwaters, it's the ark of Jesus into which we flee that provides the security that we know and enjoy and love today. I want to say in closing, you know, it would be difficult, I think. I want to talk to you a little bit to introduce the closing song about the man who wrote it. Um, The man Philip Doddridge is kind of an interesting uh, commodity. Um, The song is Oh Happy Day, and and the reason that I wanted for us to sing in a few moments this song is because I can't imagine a happier day than when you and I saw this. And let me reach out and just say this to you. You know, if I've made you uneasy this morning and uncomfortable, even that's good. Because till you get there, you can't find the relief. It's a little bit like having a boil. That's no fun, but when you lance it. So sometimes conviction, sometimes hearing straight biblical preaching makes us a little uncomfortable. That's just God the Holy Spirit. As long as it's done in the right spirit and in love, that's just God the Holy Spirit troubling us out of our concept of self-righteousness and showing us that only Christ saves. And we need Christ challenging us to ask that question, what am I really trusting in today? Am I trusting in Jesus Christ 
and him alone, or church membership, or my upbringing, or my good deeds, or my contributions to the food bank, or, and all of those things are good, but they don't get you to heaven. So it was a blessed day, really, when we came to see that so that we could also then be pointed to Jesus because to get people in that shape and then not point them to hope is a bad thing. Remember the thief on the cross when the other one rebuked his fellow and we indeed justly. He, didn't, he, he got to that during that time on the cross because the Bible tells us that they both started out mocking Jesus. But something came over that one. Well, that something was the presence of the Savior and the work of the Holy Spirit. It was working in his heart. And he came to see that very truth. That's when he turned to Jesus. And Jesus was right there. And that's always the way we want to make the gospel, right? We don't want to just rail on people. We don't want to just make them worthless sinners. We don't want to just preach hellfire and damnation without the counterpoint to that, that God loves. God so loved the world. God so loved you and me that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Anyway, back to the song. Philip Doddridge was a nonconformist. He was an 18th century English minister. He was a nonconformist, or some would call them dissenters. What's that mean? It means that he had stepped out from the Church of England. Wasn't comfortable in the Church of England. Why? Same reason, same problem. The same thing we've got going on today that so many preachers don't really pray. We've got the health and wealth gospel, and we've got Joel Osteen, and we've got all these people that just want to make you feel good, and nobody wants to tell you you need to be saved because you're a sinner. And the Church of England was kind of in that same shape, and the Duchess of Bedford actually came to Doddridge and offered him a complete a complete scholarship if he would take uh, or, or official university training and be ordained in the Church of England. He declined, saying that he, refer, he preferred, and he, here are his words, to take his place among the dissenters. Well, we might have to go forth outside the camp to him bearing his reproach, if that's what it takes. But our challenge as a church is to be true to this book. Amen. And our challenge to ourselves is to be true to this book. Not to paint ourselves better than we are, because we aren't. We need Christ. Every single one of us here today needs Christ. We don't all sin alike. But we are all alike sinners. Father, thank you for your kindness in the day you came to us, some of us in youth, some of us in our teen years, some of us later in life, and maybe not in quite so dramatic a fashion as you did in the life of Saul and Tar of Tarsus, but same real result. You knocked us to the ground and revealed to us that we are not righteous. We are sinners who need to be saved. That Jesus saves and Jesus alone. You drew us then to that lovely cross, to those five bleeding wounds, to that which people say 
is a slaughterhouse religion, but to us is beautiful. Because we find manifested in his willingness to sacrifice himself on that cross of Calvary, the love of God. We really can't understand that until we understand a little bit about the people for whom you died. So thank you, and Lord, if there would be anybody here today that isn't quite at that place, they've heard some sermons, they've heard this mentioned before, but can't honestly say that they've understood that they need to be saved by grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if we can't examine ourselves today and say that that's the basis of our salvation, then help us to realize we don't have that foundation that's on the rock. We have one that's built on the sand that won't stand the test of time or the scrutiny of God and help us to glory in the fact that through simple faith in coming to Jesus, in confessing our sins and asking to be saved based on what he's done for us and paying the penalty for our sins, we can have a home in heaven. And not just a home in heaven when we die, we can have a right relationship with you right now, today. So we thank you for this glorious truth and pray that we'll be reminded to keep our theology straight in how we live our days and in how we present the gospel to others and in how we preserve the pulpit of our churches. And we pray these things now in Jesus' wonderful name. And before we sing, let me just make this comment to you. If you're here today and you're not sure about this, you have questions, then speak to me after the service or one of the men of the church. But don't, if God is speaking to your heart, if your heart's tender and you, you, you just don't know that you've got this squared away, get that taken care of, would you? And Father, I just pray that no one will go out of this room today without that assurance that we can have. Not talking about did we mess up this morning, talking about do we know there's a time in our life when we've trusted Jesus as our personal Savior and know that we're trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. Pray that no one will go away and not accept that offer of free grace and have eternal life. And these things we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. That page for Oh Happy Day is 517, so let's find that.